This morning, we are going to be spending time in John 18. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to behold you in your glory and behold you through the glory that you've shown us through Jesus Christ. Thank you for this rich time of singing that we, we just had as we have put our cares upon the one who does know all things and who has solved our greatest need in, in Jesus. We place our hope in him. And Father, would you bless the preaching of, of the word this morning? May our hearts be soft to hear what you have for us through your word. And may we behold the glory of what is in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Do you ever wonder why Jesus gives us four, four different accounts of his life and ministry? Why are, why are there four Gospels? Doesn't it just open the door to criticism or potential for, for contradiction? And wouldn't it have just made more sense had God just given us one objective account of the life of Jesus from beginning to end? Now, it can be easy for us to think of, of the Gospels as something of a biography on Jesus, a historical biography. A biography describes the details of someone's life, and we like to think that these are filled with objective facts. So wouldn't it have made more sense if, if God just gave us, being God and being the all-knowing one, just gave us one that just kind of had it all together? What we fail to realize often is that the Gospels are far more than just a historical biography, a recounting of Jesus' life. The men who wrote the Gospels, they had an audience that shaped the way they wrote. They had priorities and experience that informed why they wrote. They weren't just looking to communicate information to us, impart information, but they were after transformation for their readers. They wanted their readers to know about God and live lives changed by God. But back to my original question, why four? Why four? Well, I was helped by this quote from New Testament scholar Jonathan Pennington, and he says this, If it is indeed true that Jesus was God's Son incarnate, the creator of the universe and the consummation of all knowledge and wisdom, then it stands to reason that no one account or a million could begin to describe and plumb the depths of his person, teaching, and actions. Pennington goes on to describe the, the Gospels as kind of four, something of four stained glass windows looking into Jesus, into the revelation of Jesus Christ, and each captures and refracts different aspects of the light of Christ. In other words, we have four Gospels to see the glory of Christ, because we couldn't begin to see or understand the glory of Christ with only one. The way we must come to our Bibles as, as Christians is not just as learners seeking to gather knowledge, but as disciples seeking the kingdom of God, as disciples seeking the good life in Christ as we behold him in his glory. So that's why, why four Gospels, so we can see the glory of Christ. And John makes it quite clear why he writes his Gospel. We've mentioned it nearly every week. John writes, chapter 20, verse 31, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All that John records in his gospel flows through, through this lens, that we might see Jesus to be the Christ and have life in his name. And last week we saw how Jesus defines 
this eternal life. This is eternal life, Jesus says in John 17, verse 3, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Martin Luther says this, that all New Testament books are written looking to aim one question. How may a weak, perverse, and guilty sinner find a gracious God? And John answers this question by pointing to the cross of Christ. Over the next few weeks, this will be our focus as the the narrative of John slows to the next day, the next three days, as Jesus is crucified. This is the narrative of Jesus' passion. And today we're going to look at John 18, verses 1 through 27. And let us look there now and see what God has for us. This is the Word of God, John 18, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. 
Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. On a clear, cool night in 33 AD, Jesus and his 11 faithful disciples left the upper room and the the Passover meal that they shared together and made their way to a garden. As they made their way there, Jesus, Jesus was teaching the disciples as they went. But this time his teaching was different. He kept talking about how he was leaving and his disciples couldn't go with him. He said that he left to go to prepare a place for these disciples, that they were a people to be marked by love and that this love would set them apart from the world and the world would hate them because of this love. This difference would bring hostility and opposition, but Jesus promised a helper that would come and be with them. And as they wound their way through these familiar alleys of Jerusalem, Jesus stopped and lifted his eyes up to heaven and and prayed. And he prayed that his glory might be known and seen. And after his prayer, this small band of friends made their way outside the walls of Jerusalem by the light of the full moon. And they went along their often trod path to the Garden of Gethsemane. They went over the brook of Kidron and through the olive trees and toward the Mount of Olives. This group had spent many, many nights in this garden together. It was a safe resting place for them. The circumstances seemed normal enough. They all made their way to the familiar spot in the walled garden. Then Jesus took Peter, James, and John a little further. And Jesus seemed increasingly troubled and distressed. He asked his disciples to keep watch and pray as he went off to pray. It was late. The disciples were, were tired. They were in the comfortable confines of this this safe haven, this walled garden, and they fell asleep. All that seemed familiar to them was, was about to change. Jesus returns, waking them up. Mark records Jesus saying, Could you not watch one hour? After this scene repeated itself two more times, Jesus makes this statement. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And with that, Jesus resolvedly walks toward the angry mob that is headed toward the garden. While these hours of the life of Jesus are recorded in all all four Gospels, John provides unique and vivid details for a purpose. John wants us to see the glory of Christ. Just like when Jesus prayed, John presents Jesus Christ as both the sovereign ruler and as our suffering substitute. So first, let's look at Jesus Christ as the sovereign ruler. The sovereign ruler. John wants us to know that Jesus is in full control of all that happens in the garden. Nothing, nothing falls outside the jurisdiction of the sovereign rule of Christ. 
Nothing goes beyond the purview of this sovereign one. Jesus walks out of Jerusalem across the Kidron and into a familiar garden. And notice what John says about this garden here in verse, verse 2. Jesus often met there with the disciples. Note the implication of this statement. Jesus didn't come to this garden as a way of escape, to find rest and a, and a safe haven. Jesus didn't come to this garden to hide himself away. Jesus came to this garden to give himself up. The last we saw, Judas was back in John 13 at the Passover meal. And since he has left the upper room, he's gathered together two groups of people. The first group he gathered together was a a band of soldiers. And the, the word used for this band of soldiers represented this Roman troop that would have been there. And it would have been as many as 600 soldiers. It's doubtful that that many people accompanied Judas, but it was a significant number. No doubt dozens and dozens of Roman soldiers came with Judas that night. And the second group of people was Jewish officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. And these represented the the religious authorities that have often sought to arrest Jesus, but have thus far been unable. And together, these two groups, they represent the world's opposition, Jew and Gentile, the world's opposition to Jesus Christ. They came with lanterns and torches and weapons ready to fight and chase down those who might hide. But look at verse 4. When John says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, he didn't escape in fear. He didn't disappear. He didn't prepare his followers for battle. What did Jesus do? Jesus came forward. Jesus knew exactly what lay ahead of him, and he came forward. Jesus knew the opposition and agony, the pain and loneliness of Calvary, and he came forward. Jesus evidences complete control over every part of this narrative. Earlier today we sang this, See the true, see the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Jesus is indeed that true and better Adam. The first Adam saw himself as guilty and hid himself in the garden. But not Jesus. He came forward confidently to give himself up to his enemies in obedience to the will of God. The true and better Adam. Praise be to God. John records Jesus as the one who willingly comes forward. As the one who initiates the action. He is the sent one, walking in confident obedience to the Father. So Jesus comes forward and asks this large group of enemies, whom do you seek? This band of soldiers came expecting fear at their their massive presence. Yet Jesus comes forward. They respond, Jesus of Nazareth. Look at the response of Jesus in verse 5. Jesus said to them, I am he. Now similar to what we've seen in the past in John 6 and John 8. This response in in Greek is just, I am. Ego eimi. I am. I am. In Exodus 3, when God in the burning bush calls Moses to deliver his people out of Egypt and into the promised land, Moses asks in Exodus 3.13, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all my generations. When God speaks through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43, God says this, I, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed. When there was no stranger, when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth, I am. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? In the very moment when there is every reason to cower in fear and despair, Jesus comes forward and announces, I am. Unless you think I'm making a bigger deal of this, of this response of Jesus than is necessary, look at how the people respond. Verse 6 says, When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. This massive group of enemies opposing Jesus sent to arrest him. Jesus responds, I am. And they draw back and fall to the ground. The opposition of the world falls before the eternal I am. Jesus asked them again, whom do you seek? But notice here how Jesus responds to their answer. He begins with the same I am statement, but then moves to care for and protect his disciples. The eternal great I am cares for his own. He says this in verse 8, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Listen to how Leon Morris describes this scene. The good shepherd takes thought for his sheep at the very hour in which he faces arrest, trial, and death. Out of their own mouth, he leads them to declare twice over, that their business is with him, which means that it is not with the disciples. Here Jesus exercises his sovereign rule, his sovereign prerogative, and miraculously stays the hand of the accusers, who no doubt would have otherwise sought the destruction of these disciples. In his sovereignty, Jesus embodies a humility that seeks the interests of others more than himself. The enemies of Jesus came prepared to shed blood with their their swords and their their torches. But our Lord in His kindness protected His sheep until the end. And brothers and sisters, if your hope this morning is in Jesus, if you've placed your trust in Him, He will keep you till the end. For whatever foe you face today, whether it be be persecution, or what you see as opposition, and you're, you're being seen as an outsider in your workplace, or whether it be sickness and disease, or whether it be a broken relationship that you just want to see restored, whatever gives you reason to fear, He will keep you till the end. Jesus is with you, and His Word, it doesn't fail. His Word is always fulfilled. Look what John says in verse 9. This was to fulfill the Word that He had spoken. There was no other option for the word of Jesus but to be fulfilled. So when Jesus says that not one of them will be lost, not one of them will be lost. Place your hope in him. His word was true then, and it is true now. 
And after Jesus' declaration of care, we reach the climax of this, this first part of the narrative. Peter proceeds to strike the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Listen to what Jesus says to Peter in his rebuke. Put your sword into its sheath. And Jesus gives reason for all that is taking place. This is why. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now John doesn't record the, the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, but we see there in throughout the Gospel accounts that at one point Jesus is praying, Shall this, can this cup pass from me? And then at another point he's praying, Thy will be done. And here he is confidently resolved to take this cup. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus knows himself to be the sent one of God. He came to drink the cup that the Father has given him. Now this cup, this cup represents the wrath of God. God's wrath is God's holy response. God's holy response to that which is in contradiction to God's holiness. That which is in contradiction to his nature. For God to be just, true, and righteous, he must bring his wrath to bear upon sin. For God to be just, he must penalize sin. For God is God. Sometimes we can, we'll tell someone that you're not acting like yourself today. Or we might, we might ask, what's gotten into you? But this is never, never true of God. God is entirely consistent in who He is. God never changes. God never wavers. God is the, the essence, the definition of truth. You know, the famous hymn says, There is no shadow of turning with Thee. Thou changest not, Thy compassion it fails not. As Thou hast been, Thou forever will be. So because God is just, though, He must punish sin. Because God is righteous, he must bring his wrath to bear upon sin. But Jesus Christ came to this world to take upon himself this penalty. To drink the cup of God's wrath for sin. The biblical term for this is propitiation. Propitiation. You might be, propitiation, what? Propitiation. Jesus Christ is our propitiation. This isn't some fancy theological word that I'm throwing out there. This is in the Bible. This is the word that God gives us. And propitiation means that God's wrath is satisfied. Jesus, by being our propitiation, takes on God's wrath against us. And John wants to make sure we get this. Communicating Christ's sovereign resolve to drink this cup. So that's why he comes to the garden. That's why he, he comes forward. That's why he protects his disciples and has Peter put away his sword. Christ, the sovereign one, the one who rules all and is over all, he comes to drink the cup. Now, nobody memorized it, but our memory verse for this past week <laughs> mentions this very propitiation. This same John writes to those who he cares for in 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. And he says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins 
of the whole world. Hide that word in your heart. Memorize it this week. Jesus Christ exercised his sovereign rule in order to be our propitiation. Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God for sin by turning to him, believing in him. He satisfies the wrath of God for your sin. One hymn says it this way. O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head, our load was laid on thee. Thou stoodest in the sinner's stead, didst bear all ill for me. A victim led, thy blood was shed, now there's no load for me. Death and the curse were in our cup, O Christ, it was full for thee. But thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. Our passage, though, doesn't end here. John contrasts his Christ's sovereign rule with the perceived failure of his mission. Two, we're going to look at Jesus Christ as our suffering substitute. In response to the revelation of, of Christ in the garden, his enemies, they're undeterred. Immediately after staying Peter's hand and expressing his resolve to continue down this road, see verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. As if Jesus was a, a lowly criminal and a threat, they bind him. And they lead him away to Annas. Now, Annas is introduced to us as the father-in-law of the high priest, Caiaphas. We're all probably familiar with, with that name. In fact, as John mentions, he's already brought him up in, in John 11. But then as we continue reading, the details can get a little confusing. In verse 19, John says, the high priest then questioned Jesus. And in verse 24, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So who is the high priest? What's going on here? Well, Annas was once the high priest. In fact, he was more than just the high priest. He served in this role from 5 AD to 16 AD. But he didn't just serve in that role. He was deposed by the Romans. And then after him, five of his sons and his son-in-law then became high priests. So in Jewish culture, this was a significant man. He had massive influence over what happened in Jerusalem. And similar to how we might refer to as a, as a living president who once served as President Bush or President Clinton. So they referred to Annas as the high priest. And in the Jewish religion, the high priest is served for a lifetime. And so they didn't respect as much the Roman installation of everyone else. Additionally, it's quite probable that, that Annas and Caiaphas lived in very close proximity together. Some even say that they probably lived in the same palace area. No doubt they shared a, a courtyard. And so as Peter and this other disciple follow Jesus, they end up in this courtyard. Now we're going to get to Peter in a second, but let's go to the, the questioning of Annas. It's not included in any of the other gospel accounts. They all contain an account of Jesus before Caiaphas. But John wants to put on full display the, the sham of what Jesus went through that night. In order for the Jews to try a man, there were, there were certain requirements for the trial. The trial must take place during the day. The prosecutors had to bring forth witnesses. Sentencing couldn't take place until two days after the trial began. But here, 
the trial of Jesus, we see none of that. Instead, there is secrecy. There is questioning of Jesus. There is mockery. From the outset of Jesus' arrest, it is clear that the entire affair is, is sinister, meant only to convict Jesus. But still notice Jesus' confident resolve, even in his suffering. He is on the receiving end of gross injustice. And he proceeds to highlight this in his, in his responses before Annas. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, why do you ask me? Why do you ask me about my ministry and teaching and disciples? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And then after the face of the sovereign one is slapped after this response, Jesus responds, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Jesus is resolved, though, and confident, even in what appears failure. Not only is he being subjected to this perverse proceeding, but John presents this, this taking place concurrently with the, the abandonment and failure of his closest friends. So simultaneous, simultaneous to this interaction, this unjust interaction with Annas, Peter and John and another disciple appear in the courtyard. They followed to Jesus follow Jesus to where he is being questioned. And based on the flow of the narrative and the vivid details described, there is little doubt that this other disciple is John himself. As John records the events of that night unfolding, he wants us to see the perceived failure of the work of Jesus. Jesus appears powerless as he is arrested, bound and brought before Annas. Moreover, Jesus' disciples have effectively abandoned him. Now if you remember... Several weeks back, we were in John 13, and Peter states this, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter's confidence rests in his ability to act. That's why he brought a sword to the garden. That's why he follows Jesus to this courtyard. No doubt, Peter saw himself as standing next to Jesus, even to the point of death. But as you and I know, that is not what happened. Do you remember how John described Judas back in verse 5 here? I think it's verse 5. Yeah, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Now look at how Peter himself is described at the end of verse 18. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. These officers of the high priest were some of the very men who moments before had arrested Jesus. And now stands Peter. Not with Jesus, but with them. And it is here that Peter denies Jesus with them. As Jesus is arrested, betrayed, and abandoned, he is left alone. But John doesn't want us to see this as a failure and evidence of weakness. John wants us to see the purpose of Christ in his suffering. John wants us to see the glory of Christ's suffering. Jesus suffered as our substitute. Notice verse 14. This is really the crux of the second half. Verse 14. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Caiaphas had no idea the significance of this declaration that one man should die. 
He made this statement back at the end of John 11, after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And the Jewish leaders are scheming to put Jesus to death. Caiaphas says, It is better for us that one man should die than that the whole nation should die. And how true this is. Jesus Christ, the sovereign one. Jesus Christ, the ruler of all, came not only as our propitiation to satisfy God's wrath, but as our substitute to take our place. After God delivered his people from Egypt, he gave them laws and and commandments. And following these laws didn't make the people of God his people. It didn't save them. God had already delivered them, but it showed them what it looked like to be reconciled to God. And in Leviticus, many of these laws are laid out. And if you're reading through the Bible this year, pretty soon you will be in Leviticus. Have a mind. Don't get lost in the wilderness of Leviticus, as some might say. But have a mind to see what God requires of his people to be reconciled. And then look to what God has provided. In Leviticus 16, talks about the day of atonement. Now the Jewish people, they had all kinds of sacrifices that they had to take part in all throughout the year and all throughout their days. But it didn't cover everything. So God provided the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur as it's now known. This day was set aside to deal with all the sins collectively of the people. On this day, first day, a bull would be sacrificed for the sins of the high priest. And then two goats were brought. And these two goats were a sin offering. And one of the goats was, was killed for the sins of the people. The second was sent out into the wilderness, representing the result of all these sacrifices, taking away the sins of the people, away from the presence of God. This is what Leviticus 16 says about that second goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself. In Jesus' day, on the Day of Atonement, when this, on the Day of Atonement, when this goat, when all, all the sins of the people were placed on this goat, it was sent out of Jerusalem. And do you know how it went? It went across the brook Kidron. As it went into the wilderness, as the sins of the people were taken away, it went across the brook Kidron. And that's how John begins his passion narrative. Jesus going out across the brook Kidron. This is the only place in the New Testament that Kidron even occurs. He goes across the brook Kidron as our substitute. Reconciliation to God, the only way we can be made right with God, is through a substitute. One man taking the place for the people of God. Substitution is central to the glory of the cross. God satisfies his wrath by substituting himself for us. God's glory shines in the suffering substitute because it, is, because it is in one man dying that God's people are redeemed, forgiven, adopted, and glorified. Without Jesus taking our place, without Jesus coming as our substitute, without Jesus satisfying the wrath of God, we have no hope. The path to the good life, the path to eternal life and everlasting joy runs through acknowledging that we cannot do what God requires of us. Christ must do it for us. This passage 
contrasts the sovereign rule and confident resolve of Christ against the darkness of injustice and the failure of his closest friends. But get this, even in the darkest moments, even in the darkest moments, the glory of Jesus, the glory of Christ shines bright. Even in the darkest moments, the glory of Christ shines bright. Think of Judas and Peter. They both spent three years at the side of Jesus, learning from him, seeing him confound Jewish leaders, performing miracles, raising the dead to life. And they had both given everything to follow him. Maybe you see something of yourself in their stories. For Judas... Even after experiencing Jesus, he saw the good life as having more. He loved the world. He spent himself. Judas spent himself chasing money. For Judas, there was more hope, more joy in having a little bit more than there was in abiding in Christ. Could this be you today? Have you seen God's work? Seen him revealed in your life and in the lives of those around you, yet still find yourself chasing after the world, looking for satisfaction in what this world holds out as a good life. Maybe it's a, a better job that you long for, or a relationship, or a stronger marriage, or more money, or good health. None of these things will shine light in your darkness. But there is one who can. There is one who can. Jesus, the light of the world. And your darkest moments give opportunity for the glory of Christ to shine. For Peter, he spent himself placing his confidence in his works, in what he could accomplish. He was a proud man, knowing God and confident in his ability to follow God. Hours before his denial, Matthew records Peter telling Jesus this. This is Matthew 26, verse 33. Jesus, though they all fall away, because of you, I will never fall away. Peter placed supreme confidence in himself. But what happens when Peter faces the accusation that he is one of Jesus' disciples? Look at verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. While Jesus answers his accusers with a powerful, I am, Peter cowers in fear, responding, I am not. And it's no coincidence that John records Jesus three times, saying, I am, and counters that against Peter's threefold denial, I am not. For Peter, he found his hope in his own ability to love and serve God. He placed his trust in what he could do rather than what Christ came to do. Maybe this is you today. Maybe you are more aware of your love for God than of God's love for you. Are you striving in your own strength rather than resting in the work of Christ? By God's grace, this mindset that Peter had was not the end of the story for him. And it doesn't need to be the end of the story for you either. We cannot look to Peter's threefold denial without recognizing God's remarkable grace. While Judas came to be defined by his betraying of Jesus and was given over to sin and death, Peter was brought again into fellowship with God. 
And throughout the rest of the New Testament, Peter is one who is firm and resolute and confident in the grace that God gives to sinners. And brothers and sisters, because of the grace he showed Peter, there is hope for each one of us. In Peter's darkest moment, when he is confronted with his sin, with his failure, with his depravity and fear, Christ's glory shines bright. For all of Peter's I am nots, Jesus is. Jesus is and ever will be. He is. I am. Jesus came, our sovereign ruler, our suffering substitute, as the propitiation for our sins, fully satisfying the wrath of God on our behalf. And it is here, in the darkest moments this world has ever known, that the glory of Christ shines its brightest. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, in your place, condemned he stood, and he has sealed our pardon with his blood. He has sealed our pardon with his blood, hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die, and this was his cry, it is finished. It is finished was his cry, and now in heaven exalted high, hallelujah, what a Savior. In the darkest moments this world has ever seen, the glory of Christ shines bright. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Hallelujah, what a Savior you have given us. God, thank you that in your wisdom, in your, in your desire for glory, in your grand design and in your sovereign rule, you chose to satisfy your wrath by providing yourself as a substitute for us. Our hope is in the one who has satisfied the wrath of God for us and has suffered in our place. Lord, may we see what is in Christ as better than this world has to offer. May we see what is in Christ and living for the glory of Christ as more satisfying and more joy-giving than anything this world has to offer. May we place our hope in you. And Lord, thank you for, for Jesus, the true and better Adam, who has come to save us, come to save us who are dead in our sin apart from you. Thank you for the love that you've shown us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.